Welcome to News and Brews. I'm Mike Heslin. And I'm Errol Yabake. And this week, again, we talk about Afghanistan because, you know, it's it's over now, apparently, for all but vulnerable Afghans. But we, we also talk about Theranos, and Mike makes approximately uh, 13,201 blood jokes, uh, which is certainly worth listening to, if nothing else. <laughs> and of course, we have to talk about climate change and Hurricane Ida and a whole bunch of other really interesting things that, that happened in a relatively eventful week this week. Yeah, a lot going on this week. This felt like a meaty one. Yeah, and by meaty, you mean like... Bruising. Hell, hellfire and brimstone and, you know, torn Achilles and all this other stuff. Not a lot of good news, but a lot of news. We should add one uh, housekeeping note, which is that as a result of said torn Achilles, which we talk about a little bit in the opening part of the show, we will be off next week. So you'll see uh, news and brews in your podcast feed again in a couple of weeks. Yeah, I mean, we could attempt to record with all sorts of fun pain medication, but since I'm supposed to go into surgery next Tuesday afternoon, like pre-recording, <laughs> but yeah, I think it's probably better that we that we bump a week. All right, let's get into it. Welcome, everybody. Hey, Mike. It's good to see you. How are you? Good to see you, brother. I guess people are hearing us, but you know, I, I can see you and that's all that matters, but how's it going? How's your weekend? I think, I think, I think it's nice that they know that we can see each other and, and that we're enjoying it, you know? Sure. Let's go with that. <laughs> uh, my weekend was good. I think maybe less eventful than your weekend. Yeah. My, my weekend was kind of a bummer. In addition to there being an infinite amount of mosquitoes in, in Washington, DC right now, I was playing in my old man soccer game on, uh, on Saturday and happened to tear my Achilles. You know, here I am with a four-year-old and an 18-month-old, unable to really do much of anything around the house. So just the imagery of the torn Achilles is so gruesome. Yeah, I don't want to like turn people off. It doesn't feel great, but yeah, it's going to be a relatively long road to recovery. So I'm just kind of like, you know, there's certainly like pain and a leave in my life right now, but it's it's mainly just like a little bit bummed out. I was like just kind of getting back into shape and starting to run again, and and then this. You know, because getting old sucks. Yeah. And so, so this means like surgery. This means surgery. Yeah. And then an extended recovery where you basically can't move around. Translation, we're importing uh, grandparents from Texas. Oh, man. To help around the house. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that, that'll be, that'll be helpful. But, well, it'd be great. Like, I'm sure they, you know, they're excited to, to see their grandkids and we're excited to see them. But it's just a bummer that simple things like doing the dishes are really hard right now. Mm -hmm. Well, we'll, we'll be, uh, we'll be tracking it each week on the podcast. Yeah. Luckily I can just sit here with my feet propped up and, and an ice pack on and you know, nobody's the wiser. That's right. Your podcasting muscles are only getting stronger. <laughs> and if I'm like slightly more irritable than normal, then like people know why that um, makes, that makes for quality content, <laughs> but it does actually relate to what I'm drinking this week. What are you working with? Uh, so it's alcoholic. Reverend's previous point about torn Achilles. Which Finally, going down, some drinking on this show. <laughs> we 
which for those that are aware, we, we have a two-story place um, and the stairs are, I, I never realized how steep the stairs were until <laughs> I had to go down in crutches. And so after a couple DC Brow Oktoberfest, that's it's going to be real fun. So I am rocking a DC Brow Oktoberfest tonight, partly because I'm ready for summer to be over. This was just kind of like a, you know, it was like the summer that could have been and all this travel and fun and all those memes about like what I thought my summer was going to be. And then the plans that Delta had for me and yeah so there was that and then of course capped off by this i'm not 19 anymore scenario but i think to channel a little uh mike here and talking about the taste of it it tastes like friendship it mm. tastes like my buddy rob coming over on a really hot muggy mosquitoy night on uh the night after he found out that i tore my achilles and bringing me a six-pack of beer <laughs> that that seems highly specific so Kudos to DC Brow for channeling all of that into, you know, this particular can. Yeah. I also have a, a fall themed brew tonight. I don't even know if this technically is a brew because it's a cider. This is we'll go another, with it. another one from Green Man Brewery in Asheville, North Carolina. And this is the Green Man Cider. And when I ordered the original six pack that I got from them, they called me afterward and said, <laughs> Hey, one of these things that you ordered was out of stock, but we can send you a crowler of the cider. Yeah. And it didn't seem like the right moment to be questioning what they had in mind. So I said, yeah, that sounds great. <laughs> Not knowing at all what a crowler was. Do you know what a crowler is? So I only know what a crowler is because we, a couple months ago, went down to Virginia and there were these massive cans. I was like, what the hell is that? And they were like, it's a a crowler, yeah. So, so yes was the right answer to the crowler question because <laughs> it is this gigantic aluminum can full of cider, thirty-two ounces. In I mean, my it's like right the now, size so. of your head for for <laughs> listeners. Like Mike has the and, can up next to his head, and it's like bigger. And for listeners who don't know me, it's not a small head. Uh, <laughs> and so this is going to sustain me, I think, through our whole uh, our whole show tonight, and then my fantasy draft afterwards. Challenge accepted. <laughs> exactly. Uh, should we get into the first round? Let's do it. The trial is beginning this week of former Theranos CEO and subject of the documentary, The Inventor, Elizabeth Holmes. The prosecution is portraying Holmes as a cold-blooded sociopath who defrauded investors and customers as her company's valuation swelled to $9 billion in 2015 before it began to unravel. Because, Errol, you can't squeeze blood from a stone. <laughs> for her part but but elizabeth holmes told me i could <laughs> so i believed her because i'm a foreign policy person on her board yeah you could be secretary of state with that attitude <laughs> for her part holmes seems to be basing her legal defense on bad blood between the ceo and ramesh sunny balwani theranos's former company president and holmes's former romantic partner uh, i remember that her defense claims he was a real prick controlling and emotionally and physically abusive just kind of blood curdling stuff, you know, Balwani for his part seems a bit more sanguine, suggesting Holmes is just out for blood. While the $700 million in investor money Theranos lost may be too rich for my blood. <laughs> it's not unheard of or illegal for a Silicon Valley startup to inject too much optimism into its forecasts uh, or to lose investor money. It took me a, it took me a couple seconds to realize what you were doing. Um, <laughs> we're, we're not this, done yet. This, this might be the daddest dad joke section that we've ever done. Well, uh, let me tell you something, Errol. Please, please continue. <laughs> what really makes my blood boil about this story? <laughs> the harm to consumers of having crackpot health technology out there. 
Theranos customers got false positive results saying they had thyroid or autoimmune conditions when they were actually healthy, even experiencing heart attacks after getting faulty test results back from their machines. But some allege that the spectacle of this trial amounts to a modern day scarlet letter, making life harder for other female CEOs in male dominated Silicon Valley. Uh, many questions remain about the trial at this point. It just kicked off today as of our recording on Tuesday. Those questions include whether Holmes will testify in her own defense and whether she will have her newborn baby in tow, potentially using her own flesh and blood to sway the jury. I see what you did there. Ultimately, we can only hope that there is some real accountability in this case and will ultimately learn the truth of who has blood on their hands. As my British next door neighbor would say, bloody hell. (laughs) Moving on. It's been a few weeks since we talked about the ongoing climate crisis and the impending inability of our planet to support human life. Uh, So we have a lot to talk about on that front. Seems like an important topic that we should Mm -hmm. cover. A quick rundown of things we haven't covered. Hurricane Henri became the first tropical cyclone to make landfall as far north as Rhode Island in 30 years. Is that Henry or Henri? You know, I have to get a French pronunciation to every episode now. So it's fair. It's Henri. Henri, I'll allow it. Fires continue to rage around the world at unprecedented levels with smoke from wildfires reaching the North Pole for the first time in recorded history. Meanwhile, a federal judge in Louisiana threatened to hold the Interior Department in contempt of court if the Biden administration doesn't act quickly on an order to resume leasing federal land for oil and gas exploration. That sounds like a good idea. So, you know, fixing it all around. Now now that we're up to this week, we can talk about the really tough stuff that's been happening. So as of three weeks ago, the Dixie Fire in California was already the largest fire in the state's history, having burned 500,000 acres. Was this the one that we could like see from DC? Like it was sort of clouding our skies. Yeah. It was starting to send smoke all across the country. Exactly. Yeah. It is still going and it has now burned over Mm. 807,000 acres, including an expansion of 30,000 acres just from Monday night to Tuesday morning of this week. That's like the size of an entire state probably. So we we've mentioned before the trope you hear of like the area burned by wildfires being compared to the size of the Island of Manhattan right? Yeah. The Dixie fire has now burned an area larger than Rhode Island, the entire state. Yes. Uh, And it is currently just 48% contained. So more to come. Wow. Fun fact, Rhode Island is neither a road nor an island. Mm -hmm. (laughs) That's quality content right there. (laughs) But the Dixie fire is not even the top priority wildfire in Northern California right now. So let me read you this lead from the New York Times today. Oh, no. The byline is South Lake Tahoe, California. They sent thousands of firefighters, 25 helicopters, and an arsenal of more than 400 fire engines and 70 water trucks. Yet the fire still advanced. They dropped retardant chemicals through an ash-filled sky and bulldozed trees and brush to slow the march of the flames through the steep and rugged terrain of Sierra Nevada. Yet the fire still advanced. Bursting across a granite ridge into the Lake Tahoe Basin, the Caldor fire now threatens tens of thousands of homes and hotels that ring the lake. When the New York Times starts using repetition in their openings, you know we're just totally screwed. Yeah, like Cicero. Like Cicero. Um, so essentially, they had hoped that with basically all the anti-fire power they had, they could prevent the Caldor fire from spreading uh, from the western side of the Sierra Nevada range to the eastern side. Uh, that had actually only ever happened one time before which was the Dixie fire. And so they realized that when that happens, things get really bad. Let's try to stop this one by just throwing everything we have at it. And uh, they could not stop that from happening. So the Tahoe Basin is now on fire. 
the main lesson that leaders in California and the U.S. Forest Service seem to be taking away from this is that as conditions in general become more conducive to fires, it is becoming increasingly futile to try to contain them. Yeah, I feel like anytime I think about moving out west, then like fire season happens. And I'm like, maybe I shouldn't do Oh, but Lake Tahoe's far enough away and it's beautiful. Yep. Yeah, not so much. So on Monday of this week, uh, the California side of Lake Tahoe was evacuated. On Tuesday, they evacuated the Nevada side as well. And at this point, the U.S. Forest Service is closing all national forests in California to visitors through September 17th. Wow. And then none of this, by the way, is even counting the dumpster fire that is the California gubernatorial recall election. So we'll have to talk more about that next week. We, we should talk about that next week because, first of all, it's an interesting exercise in elections and democracy and picking. And it's not just sort of one Democrat against one Republican, and that's what you're deciding against. It's, it's a very interesting series of events. I think the guy who's on the Republican side is like a known conspiracy theorist. Larry, Larry Elder. I think that's his name. Yes. But we I, will do our research and come back yeah. next week with more details. So there's like 40 some odd candidates on the Republican side. And I think we should spend some time learning more about that whole cast of characters. Yeah. I mean, there's some characters on the Democratic side for sure, including the incumbent California governor who seems to think that the rules don't apply to him. But there's, I think, a lot of crazy happening in California. And it's not just about fires. Yeah. So staying on the theme of uh, climate and natural disasters that are way worse because of the last 150 years of human destruction. If it's fire in the West, it's wind and water in the Southeast. Hurricane Ida made landfall in Louisiana, South of New Orleans as a category four storm with winds of 150 miles an hour. As of this recording on Tuesday night, they were still assessing the damage, but more than a million customers are without power in Louisiana, including the entire city of New Orleans. Wow. And more than a hundred thousand in Mississippi. And since a quote-unquote customer refers to a building, it could be a house, it could be a large apartment building, they speculate that more than half of Louisiana's population of 4.6 million could be without power right now, with little hope of that coming back online for several weeks. In August, in Louisiana. And, and this, of course, is the same Louisiana that has been experiencing a horrific outbreak of the Delta variant and, and has now had to evacuate multiple hospitals, including the Lady of Sea Hospital in Galeana, Louisiana, where the storm blew the roof off entirely. Yeah, I mean, I made the joke about, you know, every time I think about moving out west, but it's like really climate change is like limiting the number of habitable places, generally speaking. Um, mm -hmm. And this is not just a United States conversation. This is like around the world. I mean, people are probably wondering like why we're bringing up climate change in, you know, like, oh, hurricanes have happened forever. And it's like, it's worth just nerding out a little bit on the relationship, Mike. What do you think? Yeah, for sure. So I think like, it's worth pointing out that the relationship between climate change and these sort of extreme weather events is not coincidental. I mean, it's causal. It's basically no, there's no coincidence that there are more frequent once in a generation Hurricane Mitch style storms, you know, like Hurricane Mitch was like the thing that happened in the 1990s. And like Hurricane Mitch basically happens every year, sometimes twice a year, uh, especially in the Caribbean, but also here in the United States. And Ida landed as a category four storm, but it actually went from a category one to four, which 
I don't know much about much, but that's a big difference. That happened really fast off the coast of Louisiana in the Gulf of Mexico. And the reason is there's much warmer water out there that hurricanes love. They love it because warmer water fuels the intensity of their storms. It makes the wind go faster. And storms also suck up warm water more easily, which it then in turn dumps onto land, causing flooding and much more devastation. And Mike, what do you think the cause of that warmer water is? feels like it would be something with warming in the name, but I can't quite figure it out. Yeah, climate change. <laughs> There's actually some interesting research out of Europe that um, I came across when I was looking at the, these other climate stories, uh, which does just that attribution. They have basically shown that global warming is fueling the flooding that we've seen, particularly across Northern Europe earlier this year. Um, and obviously that applies more broadly, but for many of those same reasons, I will also say that that Times article that I quoted earlier does do a pretty good job later in the article of placing what we're seeing in context, right? So it, it talks about the domino effect of climate change on fighting fires in general. So you've got frequent heat waves, overall higher temperatures that dry out all of the plant life on the West Coast and makes it more vulnerable to large fires in general. Simultaneously, there are droughts happening for many of the same reasons that weaken the trees and encourage insect infestations that, that ultimately kill the trees. They've had close to 150 million trees die in California that just creates like a literal tinderbox for these fires to come through. It's like we're doing our level best to make the planet uninhabitable. I mean, the way that I think about it is like climate change doesn't cause any one of these things, but it makes all of them more frequent and more devastating. Whether you're mm -hmm. talking about hurricanes or droughts or fires or whatever, like that's what the issue is here. It's not that, oh, climate change caused a hurricane. And I'm sure there's some sort of, you know, media pundit out there being like, this is ridiculous. We've always had hurricanes. But yes, but they haven't happened as frequently and they haven't happened as frequently, as devastatingly as they have been in recent memory. Yep. It's not great. It's not great. Um, we're going to get a lot of rain here uh, in, in D.C. this week as Ida kind of makes its way across the United States. That's right. I don't know if you looked at the forecast, but uh, we've got our four-year-old home with us tomorrow. And we're like, oh, we'll go to the park. Never mind. <laughs> yeah, not so much. Not so much. You know, it's canceling things like Bonnaroo and it's just sort of wreaking havoc wherever it goes. Obviously, Louisiana and parts of Mississippi were the hardest hit, but um, unfortunately, the Ida story is not, not over yet. Yeah, the Bonnaroo thing, while obviously not the most devastating impact of this storm, these, these poor organizers like figured out the COVID crisis just to get hit with the climate crisis. It just brings home that we're basically all now Sideshow Bob stepping on rakes. <laughs> Let's move on to our main story. So this week, again, uh, we are going to talk about Afghanistan. And I don't think it's the last time, Mike, that we're going to talk about Afghanistan, but it's certainly momentous week because... Mm -hmm. You know, on Monday night of this week, just before midnight, Kabul time, the last U.S. soldiers uh, left. And now the Taliban is fully in control of Kabul and the airport. It's worth noting that there's a couple of 
places that are holding out that what's the remnants of the Afghan army have been regrouping in sort of the northeastern part of of the country. But I mean, that's for all intents and purposes, the Taliban is now in in control of of the country. Since last week, when we also talked about uh, Afghanistan, there's there's been a couple of in addition to the ultimate end of, of U.S. involvement there, there was a huge attack, massive bombings at the Kabul airport. Uh, late last week, and 13 U.S. military personnel, along with hundreds of Afghan civilians, uh, were killed. Kind of shocked uh, a lot of us to the core and and brought it into stark relief what the threats are um, and will continue to be in places like that. And it just struck me because of the 13 soldiers that died, uh, there were 11 Marines, uh, one Army, and one Navy, and five of them were the age of our involvement in Afghanistan. Five of them are 20 years old. Uh, I think the oldest one was 31. And he's maybe the only one of the group that would remember a world pre-US involvement in Afghanistan. Yeah, Um, These people's entire, not only careers, but lives have been defined by, by this. And when people join the military, it's not usually on a whim. It's, you know, people have long wanted to do this and wanted to serve. And so this has been part of their lives for a long time. I think it's worth spending a little bit of time on the terror attacks we saw from ISSK and the responses to them and, and counterattacks, because I think there are lessons in that as well, or at least reminders in that where, so as you mentioned, there was this suicide bombing that killed 13 Americans and uh, it sounded like close to 200 Afghans. You then saw the U.S. launch a drone strike in response Uh, which reportedly took out some senior planners within the ISIS organization there. We then got warnings very publicly that another attack was likely and imminent, followed by news that the U.S. had launched another strike and taken out a vehicle, which they said was en route to the airport packed with explosives. By the way, there was a a subsequent rocket attack uh, from most likely the same ISIS group aimed at the airport. Uh, which some of the rockets missed, others were taken out by the U.S. missile defense systems at the airport. But that that was the uh, the end of the loss of American life. At least there was there was not, nothing else after those thirteen. But then you had just some of the stories around the stories starting to come out, where yeah, you know, the U.S. said from the beginning that there were some civilians killed in the strike on the vehicle. There were reports from on the ground that the family members of the driver of the vehicle said that that individual was not affiliated with the ISIS group and that it was a mistaken attack. Regardless, there were several children killed in that attack. You just have to sort of twist yourself into moral knots to justify externally the loss of life of children like that, you know, without total certainty, or, or at the very least, even if our planners in the Pentagon are certain a lack of defensibility on the ground to the people involved and affected by this attack. And it sort of, even if that was the right call, which it may well have been, it just exposes the folly of this idea of a war on terror, a war on a tactic, you know, for which any, uh, anywhere there's chaos, there's an opportunity for a small group or individual who's willing to die to go and wreak havoc. You know, we, we've structured the apparatus of the American government around preventing this threat over the last 20 years. And ultimately, you know, we are left sort of defending the death of civilians by saying 
there could have been the death of many more civilians, yet we have no way to prove that counterfactual. Yeah, which is always the challenge, right? I mean, I think that intelligence is never certain. If you, you know, read intelligence reports, declassified or otherwise, that, you know, they, they never say like, you know, oh, we are 100% certain that Osama bin Laden is in this compound in Abbottabad. It's like, that's not the way that this works. It's like, we have a level of certainty and here's why we have this level of certainty. And here are the, the risks involved in doing this. One of which is, you know, potential for civilian casualties, which I would agree with you is really devastating. You know, listening to you there, it's, it sort of elicited three thoughts. The first is that now that we are gone officially, it's gonna be even harder to execute air attacks because we don't have eyes and ears on the ground. There's only so much that satellite imagery can do, right? Like people don't realize that when we have boots on the ground and troops and civilians, et cetera, you know, the CIA is also there. We have assets. We have, you know, this is what we talk about when we say eyes and ears. Like we have intelligence, you know, generally speaking, who the bad guys are and where they are. And we're not going to know that now, mm -hmm. right? So like, oh, we'll just like manage Afghanistan from the air. Like that's not a solution here because you're not just going to like indiscriminately bomb people or maybe we are, I don't know. That's not a strategy. So the second point is that I think a lot of people think that the Taliban and ISIS are the same thing because mm -hmm. they're extremist groups that are based in one sort of general religious identity. They're not, they're actually like sworn enemies, which leads me to my third point is a big problem is that the Taliban doesn't, have control. They, they don't have the capacity to provide security in Kabul or really anywhere across the country, much less govern effectively. The ISISs of the world are going to find places where they can operate. And so there's, there's going to be, I think, I mean, people that are smarter than I are thinking about this, but there's going to be these ungoverned spaces where either the Taliban and ISIS are going to be fighting actively or Taliban is just going to be like, yeah, whatever, you just take it. And like yep. the ISIS is going to have breeding ground to sort of train and cultivate the next generation of suicide bombers. Hmm. Yeah. And it's a sad irony, right? We went in 20 years ago to take out the Taliban that was part of the quote unquote axis of evil that was, you know, supposedly these really, um, and, and correctly assessed, I think, really awful people. We're now on our way out relying on them to secure the perimeter against this other group that's even worse. And now both will be thriving in this place. It's terrible generally, but I also think it's worth pointing out that like we ended up going in to overthrow the Taliban. We ultimately went in because of Al Qaeda mm -hmm. and 10 years after 9-11, we cut the head off of Al Qaeda. And yet we ended up staying another decade after that mm -hmm. uh, with sort of an unclear mission. And, and yes, the Taliban offered kind of safe haven to Al-Qaeda. Yes, they provided them resources and support and they were, you know, close buddies. So there's no excusing that. I mean, that's terrible. And, and the Taliban deserved, I think, to be, you know, targeted uh, back in the early 2000s after 9-11. However, I think it's the sort of mission creep that was involved after that. And this is where you hear terms like nation building, you know, like, what are we doing here? It's like, oh, well, we got rid of uh, Al Qaeda and we, you know, the Taliban got out of power, but then we also, you know, women are in school now mm -hmm. and, and girls are in school and women are working and all these like great things are happening. And so we just kind of like the mission just kept going and kept getting bigger. And I'm not 
making a value judgment on whether that was the right thing or not. I'm just saying like, that's what happened. You always hear about the Korean war as the forgotten war, mm. but more accurately, I think it was really the first forgotten war because we have failed to learn the lessons of every military intervention since that one. Mm. I think we spoke about this a bit last week, uh, saying that the history of this airlift certainly was still being written. Um, I think the assessment is still needs to be done, but I think the best thing that the leadership of our country can do from this point is to make sure we learn a lesson this time around, right? That those, those humanitarian yeah. concerns that you mentioned are not going to be well-served in the short run or the long run by military intervention. That's not the tool to use here. Yeah. Also, did you know that there's one country in the world where the Korean War is not forgotten? One guess. Korea. Okay, two maybe. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Turkey. So have you ever heard the term fight like a Turk? No. So there's a term, if you Google it, there's a term fight like a Turk, which is like, you know, sounds, you know, oh, this is a good fight or whatever. Mm -hmm. And it comes from... It was one of the modern Turkish Republic's first big overseas kind of troop campaign. Hmm. And the, Turkey contributed a lot of troops to, to the war and uh, to the Korean War. And, and they were notorious for just being fearless, you know, run into oncoming fire, all this stuff. But so it's worth Googling. We were talking, yeah, talking about war a lot, it seems, on the pod uh, recently. So there were evacuations that continued up until the very last minute. Books will be written about these last two weeks, the good, the bad, the ugly. And I think one thing that did happen uh, apparently in the last 24 hours is that there were 28 planes full of people um, that left in the last 24 hours. And the official Biden administration line was that there were over 122,000 people who were airlifted. Worth pointing out, only about 6,000 of those were American citizens. And so, you know, most were sort of allies and, and Afghans. And there's claims that this was so sort just of the as a largest side note, airlift in U.S. history. If there are any um, real journalists who listen to this, I don't quite understand that 6,000 number because we had supposedly moved 6,000 troops in within the last two weeks. And there were supposedly an additional several thousand American citizens who wanted to get out. And now there are supposedly between one and 200 American citizens left. Oh, I think so, that's an interesting point. I don't think the 6,000 people who, the 6,000 Americans that were evacuated were the US military. So in the number of people that we airlifted out, we're not counting US military. We're not. We're counting okay. primarily kind of U.S. citizen contractors, diplomats, non-essential personnel. And then there's a lot of Afghans that have U.S. citizenship. So, you know, there's story after story about an American citizen who was sort of back visiting family in Kabul and got stuck. Uh, mm -hmm. And so I think there were a lot of those types of folks as well. So 
you know, around the time that the Taliban was giving the media a tour of Hamid Karzai International Airport, which presumably they will rename shortly, because as listeners will recall, Hamid Karzai was the Northern Alliance commander turned president who aligned with the U.S. to oust the Taliban back in the early 2000s. So I can't imagine that, you know, HKIA is uh, is a name that's going to last all that long. But Mm -hmm. um, around the same time that they were walking them through the airport and saying, like, we're not in control, et cetera. President Joe Biden was giving a a defiant speech in, in the White House. I don't want to call it a victory speech. That seems a little weird in the in the context. But he was. Uh, I think defiant is the word that CNN used. And I think it's having watched the speech, it's it's relatively accurate. Did you watch the speech, Mike? I did. Yeah. So I'd, I'd welcome, you know, your, your take on this as well. I think my, my first sort of initial takeaways were, I think it was important that he pointed out the airlift and that it was the largest in U.S. history. You know, he didn't necessarily mention that there are a ton of people still in danger, um, and I think we should get to that in this conversation in a little bit. I do believe him when he talks about the heroism of those who accomplished uh, that airlift, however faulty over the last couple of weeks. You know, people did work day and night. They didn't always give it right. But, you know, they were working to save as many people as, as they could. And I think another valid point the president brought up is that this started with the Trump administration's deal with the Taliban. And I think this is going to be easily excused in the media as like Biden trying to change the narrative, but it's actually something that I've been wondering all along. And and it's not to excuse the Biden administration for whatever kind of difficulties and, and debacles there were in the evacuation and people left behind, like, let's set that aside for a second. The Biden administration was essentially facing this sort of choice. They could either stick to the agreement that Trump had made, or they could massively escalate and and put themselves at at risk of of Taliban attacks. I read this thing uh, in one of the articles that I was reading about the terms of the agreement that, that Trump had negotiated, and it said it included no requirement that the Taliban work out a cooperative agreement arrangement with the Afghan government. Right. And, and we signed that. We, the U.S. government, signed that. So essentially, we paved the way for the Taliban takeover. We didn't think it was going to happen this fast. But, you know, essentially, Biden could have abided by that agreement, which ultimately we ended up doing, or he could have reneged on it. And the Taliban would have been super pissed in the middle of fighting season in Afghanistan we would have put, we sort of would have led to a massive escalation in a war that we were trying to end. Yeah. This goes back to something that we've talked about on this show before. There is plenty of criticism out there. And I think plenty of it is is fair and in good faith. And I hope we learn lessons. Your point, Mike, is extremely well taken. Like we need to focus on learning lessons. But at the same time, I haven't heard anyone actually talk about what they would have done better here. Right there, to your point, there was no option that that allowed for a sustainable, low grade level of involvement in Afghanistan. It just didn't exist, right? The, oh, but the Mike, last... Pam- Mike Pompeo wrote in the USA Today, like, "Oh, we would have done it better." I'm so glad we don't have to talk about him on a regular basis anymore. <laughs> um, it's all bullshit. Every hypothetical we would have been able to do X, Y, and Z. 
those alternatives just didn't exist. Now, Biden was at his strongest and perhaps most defiant in this speech when he was talking about the decision to leave in general, the decision right. to end the 20-year war, which I think is also the most easily defensible part right. of this, right? On the policy level, it's what a wide swath of Americans wants at this point. I think the intellectual foundations of why it is so important to disengage militarily are solid, and he campaigned on it. And so that part made a lot of sense. He also, though, quite forcefully defended the execution side of this and you know, said that there was, there was no practical way to, for example, get our people out sooner or get uh, Afghans out sooner. So I think when we do the full accounting and we look back on this, that doesn't entirely hold water most likely, right? There have to have been things that we could have done to bring more urgency to the visa process to accelerate the ability of people, both Americans and others, to get out of the country when they wanted to, if, if it was sooner than the last two weeks. I would agree with all that. And I, and I think this is part of the, I think President Biden stands in the White House and talks about, you know, not only the decision to leave, but his execution. I thought it was a good speech. I thought it was a strong speech. I think history will tell whether it was a hundred percent accurate speech, especially on the evacuation point. You sort of outlined the after action report for for this in a way. And yeah, just two two final quick thoughts on the speech. One is the you mentioned the heroism that Biden called out at the front. Mm-hmm. And and that even though this wasn't a victory speech about the war, this was a highly successful mission to airlift people out of a very dangerous situation. And I think that it actually made me think about some of these past wars, particularly Vietnam, in a different way, in that we remember collectively the broad strokes, right? Mm. And the, the outcomes of wars and some of the powerful images that we see. But there are small acts of heroism, real heroism involved, whether it's things like being the president who's willing to stand up and say 20 years is enough, or it's, it's you know, individuals risking their lives to get people who, who they've never met out of a dangerous country. But that I think is really important. The parts of the speech that gave me the most concern were some of the forward-looking statements where Biden said things like, we will continue to get people out of the country if they want to leave, or we have leverage over the Taliban going forward to get what them to do what we need them to do. And I think given some of the rosy assessments and really happy talk we've heard in the last couple of months out of the administration, I don't know how much water that holds. I think there's plenty of room for skepticism on both of those. So, I mean, the Taliban promised to let people with passports and visas leave once commercial flights resume, like, color me skeptical. You know, I'm listening to that on one hand, and then I'm hearing reports of Taliban fighters going door to door and killing people suspected of working with Americans and internationals. So, and being medievally horrible to women and all these things that the Taliban are, are notorious for. So you'll excuse me if I don't take them at their word. I think part of that in the speech is, is him trying to use words in a speech at the White House as a way of holding their feet to the fire. I'm not sure how much leverage that has over the Taliban, but it's worth a shot. Speaking of, of leverage, I, I think 
the second thing I was thinking about as you were talking is like, look, Afghanistan's a super poor country, even before this all has has happened and they've suffered through war for decades and you know there's very little economic activity and you know progress has been made in the last couple of decades but it's not sort of this like blossoming economically thriving jeffersonian democracy that like Karl Rove thought it would be in December 2001 or whatever and so i think there's like there's certainly room for skepticism but i think one of the things that President Biden and honestly all purveyors of humanitarian aid and just development assistance more broadly in Afghanistan are going to have to realize is like, look, this is an economy in a country that's largely dependent on foreign assistance. And so is that foreign assistance going to be used as leverage? And is that what he's talking about? I have certainly huge qualms with humanitarian assistance, life-saving assistance being used as sort of a, a lever in any sort of political game, but maybe that's what they're talking about. Maybe they're mm-hmm. talking about something else that we don't know about, but it's certainly something to watch. Mm-hmm. I'm just thinking about like the future, and you mentioned the humanitarian situation, Mike, and there's a couple of things about what Afghanistan looks like moving forward that I'm thinking about and worrying about and, and tracking. And, and the first point is, progress in Afghanistan is like a pendulum and that pendulum has swung back and forth in pretty extreme ways for the better part of the last century. There's this really amazing Atlantic article from I think 2013 or something that is entitled Afghanistan in the 1950s and 60s. And we can link to it in the show notes. And it basically shows, it's not text. It basically just shows a series of photos. And the first photo is of these three uh, Afghan women who were studying medicine. You know, all of them are sort of head uncovered and they're studying medicine. They're obviously in university. Mm-hmm. And so I have a personal story, if you'll indulge me for a second with, with that. So I had been in Afghanistan for a few months at this point, and but I had recently come to this one office that I was at in Kabul. And I think it was the the office cleaner or some sort of non-technical sort of non-leadership position person came to me. And once this article came out, I was in Afghanistan when this article came out and she showed me this article and she threw a friend who was able to translate. She sort of pointed at this picture of the three Afghans and and essentially was telling me that one of them was her mother. Wow. Um, And she was, very proud, not only of that, but that her daughter was now going to enroll in Kabul University the next year and wanted to study medicine hmm. like her grandmother did. And of course, in the the person that I was talking to had lived a significant portion of her life under ta- Taliban rule. And 50s and 60s was this kind of like time under the last king of, of Afghanistan uh, that you know, brought in some liberalism, small L liberalism and, and Western ideas or whatever. And then in the seventies, the pendulum swung back and then sort of continued to swing when the Taliban took over in the nineties and then kind of swung back the other way for the past 20 years in terms of, you know, women's rights and education and things like that. And I just think that we're at this point where unfortunately, hopefully that, you know, my old colleague's daughter has graduated and 
she wanted to left the country, but, you know, I fear that they're in for a fairly dark period of that pendulum swinging going forward. Yeah. I, I share that fear on their behalf and, and it's a really powerful story. When it comes to leverage, when it comes to what does the portfolio of aid sources look like for the Taliban and for Afghanistan under Taliban rule, it's hard to see a scenario where the ongoing level of influence for the US doesn't drop dramatically, right? When it comes down to it, China just has a more real interest in what happens in Afghanistan. Of course, there are a lot of sunk costs. There are a lot of real human stories. There are a lot of humanitarian concerns. But in terms of real foreign policy interests, I just don't know what that amounts to for the US. China shares a border with them. It remains to be seen, right? I mean, I think the the simplistic way of looking at this is like there's rare earth minerals in Afghanistan and China loves them some rare earths and the, you they know do. they they traverse all over the world to try to, you know, suck them out of the ground and fly them back to Shenzhen or wherever. And I think that that certainly could come to pass and the Chinese are in a in a big way really risk averse. They they like stability. They don't care who is the purveyor of that stability. And so if the Taliban, I think, emerges as a purveyor of stability in Afghanistan, then I think you'll see more Chinese investment. They, they don't really care. Human rights, you know, all that stuff. Right. But I'm not, again, going back to my previous point, I, I'm not convinced that the Taliban is the purveyor of, of stability and has that capability. And so this sort of like, oh, the Chinese and the Russians are going to benefit. Like, oh, I don't know. And on the American point... Let me just pause there because saying that the Chinese will exert more influence in Afghanistan is not necessarily the same thing as saying China and Russia win as a result of this. Uh, there, there was actually a really good discussion about this on Ezra Klein's podcast this week, where why does it have to be to the detriment of some fundamental US interest that uh, there is more aid going into Afghanistan from China or Russia relative to the US? You know, there, there's on one level, this tendency to sort of look at the region like a, like a risk board. On another level, I think our national brain is a little bit broken from like decades of containment policy and uh, various bugaboos, you know, needing, needing a foe around the world. I don't know if I buy the contention that having China deliver assistance to the Taliban is hugely detrimental to U.S. interests. I also don't think that the Chinese are going to come in and deliver a whole bunch of assistance. The story of Chinese humanitarian assistance or quote-unquote development assistance is not one of blind altruism. It's mm -hmm. about headlines. It's about currying favor with local leaders. It's not necessarily about kind of providing better outcomes for people. So I think they're going to do it insofar that they think that there is a benefit in it for them. But I'm not sure that this is like a story of like, oh, China's going to come in with like trucks and trucks of food. Like, mm -hmm. I don't think that's mm -hmm. a thing. I think for us, though, it's I think Afghanistan will eventually sort of seep into a level of importance that Maybe not after 20 years of engagement, but, you know, you could see it seep into a level of importance that say like a Yemen 
or a Syria or a Libya sort of gets a sort of post-conflict, perennially unstable, kind of mm-hmm. fragile environment that we need to keep our eye on lest it become a safe haven for terrorists that pose a national security risk to us and our partners. And I think that that's the extent to which we can keep some sort of tabs on what's going on in Afghanistan. Again, skeptical now that we're gone, but I think that's probably where this is going from a U.S. national interest perspective. And and does that open more ripe kind of opportunity for the Russias and the Chinas of the world? Perhaps. But like you said, I'm either I'm not sure that it's like a significant thing or I'm not even sure that it matters all that much. I don't think China's like beating down Afghanistan's door and saying like, we want you to be part of the Belt and Road Initiative. Yep. I mean, the thing that I'm tracking though, from an Afghan perspective, Mike, is more just like the sort of utter humanitarian situation. It's laudable that 122,000 people were able to get out. You know, that is, that's about a fourth of the number of people who have been forcibly displaced internally in Afghanistan, Mm. even before the Taliban took Kabul. So there have been 550,000 people estimated between January 1 and uh, end of July that have been forced from their homes and couldn't leave Afghanistan. So they're in, you know, internal displacement camps, they're staying with relatives in other cities, or they're on the streets of Kabul or wherever. That number is undoubtedly higher. And when you combine it with the 3.5 million people that were internally displaced before, you've got more than the, the population of Los Angeles worth of people who are displaced within Afghanistan. So wait, the 550 million was just like in the last couple of weeks. So 550,000 was between Sorry, January, January 1 and end of July. Wow. So nobody knows how large that number is now that the Taliban has taken over, but presumably due to their sort of medieval kind of ideas about governance and women's rights and, you know, attacking people deliberately and door to door who, who supported international partners, presumably those numbers are going up and, and will continue. I think the longer the Taliban is in charge, those numbers will continue to go up. You know, you've got over well over 4 million people who have no place to go, who were just forced from home. I mean, we talked about Ida before. This is like the hurricane coming to you and you have very, very little time to to do anything. And so you grab a plastic sack full of clothes and diapers and whatever you can and you get the hell out. This is sort of where a lot of these people are. And then a good number of folks are also going to find their way outside of Afghanistan. And then, then they become refugees, Iran, Pakistan, Uzbekistan, and then ultimately they might make their way to Turkey and onto Europe. Obviously, a lot of folks are coming to the United States as part of that 122,000. But I think that this is like the kind of vulnerability of those people that are forced from home and the vulnerability, not only of them and their families, but you know, the vulnerability of, of the communities that they then find themselves in, because these are already a lot of times poor communities that are now trying to lend a hand and, and to, you know, brothers and sisters is it's going to be a humanitarian. It's already probably a humanitarian catastrophe at a time when humanitarian agencies are saying they still sort of have access and the Taliban have signaled that they want them there, but we certainly mm-hmm. don't have the level of access that we had a month ago. So I think that's going to put a ton of people at risk. And that's kind of what, what keeps me up at night these days. So there are still humanitarian NGOs and organizations able to operate in Afghanistan right now. 
Yeah, there was a there was an interesting article out about the UN Refugee Agency got basically like a day or two after the fall of Kabul. There was this like group of Talibs that showed up at their office with like an official letter that had a stamp on it. And they were like, we would like you to stay. And if you need us to protect you, we can protect your offices. It was a little jarring, right? Because there was like this kind of semblance of governance and, and efficiency, you know, that was going on. And so it's like, they're doing some things that are signaling that, you know, the UN Refugee Agency and the International Organization for Migration and other, you know, the International Committee, the Red Cross is still there, Red Crescent, and there's others that are still operating there. And, and they've, they've signaled that they want them there, but at what cost, right? Like, are, are those agencies going to you know, be pushing for more protection for women. Again, this comes back to sort of the conditionality leverage conversation that we were having earlier. And I think a lot of that is just really messy, gets into really kind of moral, even international law territory that we're just learning on the fly. Wow. It's a lot to think about and certainly not something that's going to be resolved quickly. I don't think so either. And I think one thing that we probably don't have time to talk about today, but I, I mean, I've, I've also been just sort of thinking about, you know, this has been the last 20 years of U.S. foreign involvement has been defined in some way by, by Afghanistan and, and what the end of that means. So let's put a stopper in the beer for now and maybe come back to that at a later, uh, at, a, at a later point, because I'd, I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. I'm glad we talked about Afghanistan and Afghans particularly, because I think that's the thing that concerns me the most, but I think that there's some really interesting questions about patriotism and nationalism and, and other things that we can dive into at a later point. Yeah, I, I suspect we will have plenty of opportunities to talk about U.S. involvement in the world. I just learned, for example, that we sent troops into Democratic Republic of the Congo earlier this month. Yes. So, you know, <laughs> one, one ends and another begins. And I think this is one of the questions is sort of like, when and where and how does military-led interventionalism make sense? Yeah. I don't know much about the Congolese uh, incursion, but you know, I think the era of us sending hundreds of thousands of U.S. soldiers and twice that many contractors uh, and support staff into a conflict zone, I think that era is for now over. Yep. Well, once again, Errol, we fixed it. We're really good at fixing things. It just um, keeps happening. I'm like really bad at fixing things around the house, but when it comes to news <laughs> and brews and like the world, um, you know, all right, we got it. Brilliant. Thanks for listening, everyone. News and Brews is hosted by Mike Heslin and Errol Yabuke. Our producer is Alana Nevins. This episode was recorded Tuesday, August 31st, 2021 at 8.30 p.m. Eastern time. Look out for new episodes available each Wednesday on all major podcast platforms. Thanks for listening.